The following is a Poppy Chulo Radio original program. The views and opinions expressed in the commentaries and or interviews in the following program are solely those of the individuals and are not views of Poppy Chulo Radio, its parent, affiliate, or subsidiary companies. Welcome to The Waking Dream, a poppychularadio.com original series. Poppychula Radio, pop culture on demand. Today is Monday, August 22nd, 2022, and I am your host, Vincent Hatcher. During this podcast, we'll be having an in-depth discussion of Netflix's The Sandman. Before we dive in, please welcome my co-host, Jeffrey Aruz. Wakey, wakey, listeners. And Priscilla Obregón. Hey there, handsome and beautiful gents and ladies and all you in-betweeners. I love that you waited with like a dramatic pause, Priscilla. That was great. (laughs) (laughs) We do enjoy a dramatic pause. Absolutely. Especially after last week when I said that she, you know, sounds like a villainess in a movie like Dame Priscilla. (laughs) So let's jump into our discussion of season one, episode five, which was titled... 24 7 and debuted on august 5th 2022 via netflix here's the official synopsis with morpheus caught off guard john settles in at a diner to watch the people around him and put his theory about truth and lies to a terrifying test oh <laughs> sounds all right dun, dun, dun. so bum So we begin kind of where we left off, with Dream being struck down by his ruby, thanks to John's protection alteration that he did on it. And Matthew was trying to wake Morpheus up and kind of let him know, like, hey, ruby's gone, something happened. And that is kind of put on the wayside. So we knew that was coming, because last time John walked in, swept out with the roomie while Dream was unconscious. And so now we get to see where John ended up going after he left our beloved Rosemary free to go with the orb of protection. So where does John go? To a 24-hour roadside diner. Once he's in the diner, he's greeted by a waitress by the name of Bet about new typical waitress fare in a nice little dining establishment. She's very friendly. She offers him a seat and, you know, Asks how he's doing, and he tells her, I am doing so much better now that I have my ruby. So, John sits down, coffee's on the way, and he is watching Bet as she interacts with her co-workers, Lindy and Marsh. She also converses with patrons that are coming or going or already seated, one of which is a young girl by the name of Judy who is trying to contact her girlfriend, Donna. Now, there's clearly some tension We get the impression that something went on between the two of them. Judy's very bothered and trying to get in touch with Donna, who's not responding. Well, while that's going on, we have a young gentleman by the name of Mark come in. He's in a very snazzy business suit, and he's got a little portfolio in his hand. And, well, small town. Assumptions are made that he's there to interview with a company by the name of Vanguard. And he's early for his interview, he says, and he's asking if he can just cop a squat and pass some time. Bet seats him conveniently next to Judy, 
who very quickly is, uh, hi, I'm Mark, and Judy says, I'm gay, <laughs> to diffuse bets for attempt at matchmaking, which we get to see a more positive, or is it, result of her matchmaking in a couple that comes in and Bet quickly celebrates that Kate is the CEO of the company that Mark is applying for, but she's there with her husband, who Bet helped get together with. She sat them next to each other five years ago. It's a very big crowning achievement for her, and she's very proud of it and wants to tell everybody she's very happy that this worked out to be happy for them. And as this is happening, everyone's getting seated. Bet's getting a little bit distracted by all of her patrons before getting back to John to take his order. And while she's talking to him about his order, John is being John. and He's making some inquiries and just asking about Bet and what she's interested in and who she is and what she is. And he points out that she was talking to her patrons about how she's a writer. And he asks her about it, and she says that she's a writer. She likes to write stories based on real people. And John is intrigued. He's quickly observing that maybe people are not telling the entire truth because we know our man John wants full, blunt honesty. And when he gets it, he's happy. And when he doesn't get it, he likes to make it happen. So we kind of start to get the feeling that John's about to put the ruby to the test. So I'd like to stop here. We've got the stage set. We're in a diner. We've got these various people. Uh, we didn't talk a lot about Marsh, but he's the cook in the back that takes over for Lindy. And there's clearly something between him and Beth that we'll find out more about in a bit. But let's just kind of start, and I want to know what you guys thought about the, the setting of the diner stage. Jeff? Oh, gosh. This was a fascinating episode, because it was, in essence, a bottle episode. For the most part, we did not leave that diner for 95% of the episode. We had a little bit at the beginning and a little bit at the end elsewhere, but the majority of the episode was this diner. The first thing that I thought was, y'all are in danger. The second thing that I thought was, okay, we had heard all of these warnings from his mother about, don't you remember the last time he used the jewel? There was murder, death, kill. And I was like, oh no, is it going to happen again? And then the third thing that I noticed was, that really tense conversation about a spinach salad or a double-decker burger. And I was like, okay, shit's about to go down in the diner. And uh, I'm kind of here for it. And I will also say, I loved Bet from the beginning. I like it. Priscilla, what are your thoughts on the spinach salad and everything else? Okay. So this weekend, I took the liberty of like going back and reading the issues that this is based off of just to like judge myself up for this episode. And you were completely right. I'm going to I'm going to go back and backtrack and say John T is an asshole and he's terrible in the comics. He's wait, worse. wait, like Priscilla, can, can you say that again? I'm sorry. I have to say sorry and say and say that John D is an asshole. You were completely right. Jeff, I want it on record. She said that I'm right. I know. It's (laughs) like your birthday wish come true. (laughs) Continue, Priscilla. Sorry, I had to. 
oh my god he's terrible so i like what they did i i like that he's different but this episode in the comics it's graphic it and it's brutal and i just remember that and as soon as he got into the diner with the ruby and he just started talking to the waitress i was like shit y'all are gonna die this is this is not gonna end well bad shit is gonna happen oh my god like i was just mm-hmm. it's, it's that feeling when you're at the top of the roller coaster and you know there's nowhere to go but down and it's gonna be terrible yes Listeners, full disclosure, if you thought the episode was graphic and violent and exciting, go read the comic that correlates. <laughs> yeah. It is, uh, I, I think it's safe to say exponentially worse, and I think things happen in a different order, but uh, yeah, John D. in the comics is much more vicious, and uh, at, le- at least we get the pretense of him wanting to fix the world and I, I, I've kind of felt like they're trying to give him like a humanized aspect, but as John's story has progressed, it's almost like the opposite of the journey that Dream has been going on, where like Dream is getting more human and John is kind of slowly revealing to us that he has a lot less humanity than maybe you initially thought. He's twisted in the in the comics. He's he, he's essentially a DC villain. And he was yeah. put in, like, a DC, like, uh, insane asylum, Arkham. So, mm-hmm. like, you can you can see that he's a caricature of just kind of, like, everything bad in the world. And in this one, they humanized him. They made him, like, okay, if he's bad, it's because of the relationship with his mother and the lack of a father. Not to mention genes from the father probably, like, contributing to a terrible person. But, um, yeah, and I, this might be getting further into it, but, like, it, Dream also mentioned that the, the ruby itself was poisoning him, which was never, Mm -hmm. like, kind of stated in the comics, like, but it makes sense why he's a bad person here. In the comics, it's like, no, he was just a bad person. It kind of expands on the premise that we've seen with every single one of Dream's tools, where, he repeatedly says these were never meant for mortal hands. And when they are in said mortal hands, disaster is sure to follow. You know, we saw with Rachel that the sand wasted her away. We didn't see the helmet in mortal hands, but we we, we saw a demon that had it. And obviously that wasn't intended and that led Dream going to hell. So that was bad. But two out of three tools we have now seen have an effect on humans when they get them. And I thought it was really fascinating to finally get to see John wield the ruby here in episode five where we've had this kind of slow buildup about it and we we knew it was going to be the final one that was retrieved and i was really interested to see how this particular scene was going to play out because i vividly remember the comics i don't remember the order of the story but i just remember how graphic it was uh so moral of the story listeners is absolute power corrupts so speaking of corrupting let's go back to our friend john He's got Bet trying to take his order. They're having a conversation, and he uses the ruby on Bet. He lets out a trickle of the power to get her to start telling the truth. And he continues to use the ruby to instill truth from patrons in the diner. 
So let's see. We have Marsh in the back. And Marsh is a cook, and there's clearly tension with him and Betts. We have the implication that there's a relationship there, or maybe an, a failed relationship. And after her encounter with John and the Ruby, Bet goes back, and she's talking with Marsh, and she's actually trying to ask him why he won't talk to her, why he's so offish. And Marsh feels the power of the Ruby and is telling her, mm, you know, a little bit of a, hmm, things and stuff. Like, you just want me because I'm accessible and I'm here. And I come over because I like having dinner with you and your son. And then I like having dessert with your son in his bedroom when you're asleep. Insert audible gasp of shock and surprise. Right? <laughs> Were you, did you guys expect that? No. I, is it weird that I kind of got the hint? Like, like oh. you got the hint at the very beginning that he wasn't interested in her. And Beth's a really, like, nice, nice woman. So, like... Why wouldn't he be interested in her? And I was just kind of like, you don't get you don't get a gay vibe because he's not like completely like the a caricature of gay, like the way Will and Grace makes gay. But like he's subtle. Yeah, I didn't I didn't expect it for once. I didn't predict it. Like I didn't predict that it was going to go. Hey, I'm diddling your son route. But like I felt like there was going to be something where he was only with her to use her for something. And so when that came out, I'm like, that actually makes sense. And I, I was surprised. Um, Jeff, just for context, in the comics, Marsh is not the cook. They actually, like, don't show the cook. So they actually, this is a change they made for the episode, I think, to make it a little bit more cohesive and reduce the cast and, like, provide the functionality. And I thought this was an interesting dynamic. Um, so Bet gets that little shock. And... You know, Bet does the only thing that she can do when she's at work in a restaurant and there's very few places for privacy. And she runs to the bathroom to have a good cry. And Judy witnesses this and obviously is a little bit concerned. But Judy has kind of been feeling the effects of the ruby a little bit, too. Uh, she's trying to get a text from Donna and she's been in this little conversation with Mark and she's confused why Donna isn't replying. And Mark's feeling a little bit ruby high and looks over and says, that's because she doesn't want to hear from you. And that pisses Judy off, understandably. And she goes to leave, but that's when the power of the ruby starts to get her. And she goes and she sits back down after Bet asks her to, because Bet's kind of influencing it with the influence of John. And so we've got Bet in the bathroom. Judy's outside the bathroom now trying to comfort Bet and get Bet to come out. Let's spend some time with our happily married couple. Kate and her husband are seated and everything from the external looked great. But as Jeff pointed out, from the moment they're kind of left to their own devices, not all is well with this couple. There's clearly some tension, starting with the debate of what do you want to order? Do you want the double decker or do you want the salad? And clearly Kate exerts some control and influence because her husband decides, nope, I'm going to go with the spinach salad after all. And we can kind of start to see tension building up and a little bit of truth showing it it's kernel with these guys and that's building up so we've got this stage set players are going into various positions and we are given throughout the beginning of this episode and most of the episode vignettes of interactions with all of these characters 
And as it continues, we do start to get an unraveling of the pretense that we saw at the beginning of the various happy people. Sure, some of them were having frustrations, but we're starting to see the layers pulled back as John is poking at the secrets and causing the truth to come out. We get the impression with the couple that the husband is possibly cheating on Kate. We get the impression that Kate is very distant and very controlling. Judy, there's clearly something going on as to why her girlfriend doesn't want to get in touch with her, but we don't get the reason why immediately. Mark, he's a little bit more subtle, obviously nervous about his interview. But then Mark gets his chance because Bet introduces Mark to Kate. And Kate takes a very, very active interest in Mark and offers to do his interview right there at their table in the diner in front of her husband, who is very clearly not very happy about this turn of events and eventually gets up to walk away. And he goes into the kitchen and we'll revisit with him in a bit. So Mark's getting his interview and Kate's asking him, you know, your typical kind of interviewer questions. But then she asks him to talk about himself, what kind of person he is outside of his portfolio and his resume. He's talking about how he's not the most, you know, well-performing boyfriend material because he doesn't have a job, lives in an apartment with like five people. And she's very interested, like avidly interested. And then we get into the most awkward interview question ever about men liking to be controlled. And we get some sexual connotations and a little bit of innuendo. Kate is very clearly into Mark. And now her husband's in the kitchen talking to Marsh, and they clearly have a relationship, a friendship, and they're talking openly about the frustrations. And uh, things are about to take an interesting turn of events. Where did we think this was going? I'll open this up to either of you if anyone has any commentary. They were all going to (laughs) fuck. That's where I thought it was headed, 100%. I, I will say this. We haven't gotten there, but the whole situation with Bet that shocked me. Just because I didn't see that coming. But the other two, I was like, they're going to fuck in this restaurant. And the fucking in the kitchen area is not sanitary. Like, that's Cross not up to the... Pardon? It's like cross-contamination. Exactly. That's going to be a part of like a dirty dining segment on the local news later that night. But yeah, I was like, okay, they're all going to have sex. And I was like, okay, so John is making them all be truthful. They're not lying. So they're being as brutally honest as possible because that's what John wants. You know, he doesn't want the lies. He doesn't like people lying. He wants the truth. The brutal, honest truth. So everyone is giving in to their truthful, carnal desires. And I was like, that's going to lead them to having sex. And they did. Priscilla, knowing what you knew, what did you expect? Were you were you shocked with the way things were headed? No, because the way the show was like setting it up, it was obvious they were going to fuck. Although I was surprised that Bet was by, I was like, "Yeah, that surprised it me." Like she, ten thousand percent. Because I thought that she was super into Marsh, and like, I don't know, but but I guess she she is. Well, I think what happened with her is 
she was letting her guard down. She was realizing what she was actually yearning for. And it wasn't necessarily that she was yearning for Marsh. She was yearning for intimacy. And at that moment in time, as I look up her name, Judy was the one that was offering and providing that intimacy. I could be wrong, though. No, I agree with you, Jeff. I, I think it wasn't so much that Bet is necessarily bisexual or gay or anything like that. I think that in this moment, you know, it goes back to what Marsh said in the beginning where he's like, you just want me because I'm here and I can give you something right now. Bet really clearly has a lot of love to give, but she also wants to be loved. She's not a person who is clearly very appreciated. I think a lot of the, the vibe that I got from like her patrons and such was that they're kind of patronizing towards her, not to make a double entendre pun. Um, you know, they, she's the waitress. Yeah. She got these two together and she's very friendly and all of that. But there's almost that, like, they take her for granted, and she's clearly someone who's taken for granted by a lot of people in her life. And the real honest truth of what she wanted was for someone to want her and to show that and for it to be genuine. And I think in that moment, that's what kind of happened is she had the guard down to let her ultimate truth come out. And that's, you know, it's a fundamental truth for most people is that she just wants to be loved genuinely. It was was like... I think we got the biggest hit when she's like, you're not, she's not good. You're, oh, how, how did it go? She's not good enough for you. you. You're good enough for her. When she was talking to Judy, I was like, you don't usually say that to someone unless you're like really best friends with them or you like them. And Touché. with Judy, like she's an acquaintance. Even Judy mentioned it to, to Mark that, she doesn't know them very well because she doesn't really like no she, she she was hooking them up even though Mark is straight and Judy is a lesbian so like yeah I, so speaking I, I of know. let's That's dive into the uh, the grand slam as it were <laughs> we kind of jumped oh. to gun a little bit but it's a perfect segue because we had the build up we had the stage set and the tension. But it all comes out. So everyone has their pairings. We've got Judy and Bet, Gary and Marsh, Kate and Mark, and John sitting by his lonesome self, just kind of walking through the diner, doing what he wants. As Kate pounces on Mark and they start fucking in the seat, we've got Judy and Bet on the floor in the right outside the restroom area, kissing and going at it. And then we've got Marsh and Gary making out in the kitchen. And that goes south, if you know what I mean. Not in the bad way, but physically goes south. And Marsh so was doing a different kind of job. Yes. <laughs> and so we have a mass pairing off of three couples that were not originally intended at the beginning of the episode for each other. But now their guard is down, the truth is out, and they are primal. Primal is a really big theme. They are channeling into primal urges, and John feels that he has taken away the lies, and he's allowing them to live their truth. But as this is all happening, there is an element of desperation, of voraciousness with all of these people. Like, they are not themselves. And as things continue, once the pleasure is done, we get kind of like 
an awkward moment that's not awkward in a bad way between Bet and Judy, where we kind of talked about this. Bet's kind of like, I can't believe I did that. I, that's so interesting. You know, she's very clearly shook a little bit of what just happened. And next we see Gary pinning Mark down on the floor and he's choking him and not in the way that what just happened might have hinted at. No, this is like real on violent. I'm going to kill you choking because even though Gary was just doing his own thing in the kitchen with Marsh, he's kind of got his senses back that like this guy just humped his wife in the diner and he's none too happy about it. Kate's saying, stop, stop, oh no, oh no, Mark is getting strangled. So Mark does the only thing that he can do when you're in primal state and you're being attacked. You protect yourself. And so Mark ends up, I believe it was in the neck or slit his throat, he stabs uh, Gary with a utensil. And Gary proceeds to fall to the floor and bleed out as Kate, who was very unhappy with her husband earlier, is now... The grieving wife watching her husband bleed out on the floor while Mark is professing, I don't normally hurt people. Why is this happening? Hmm, I wonder. And so we start to have a breakdown. We're piece by piece and one by one, all of the people, all of the patrons in the diner serve themselves up as a dish of gore and violence. We've got a slit throat. We've got... Bet stabbing her eyes out, literally because John tells her she needs to be able to see. We basically end up with all of the patrons on the floor, blood everywhere. And John is like just walking around eating ice cream and he's surveying his kingdom of what he has done. And there is a moment where Bet, before she takes out her eyes and all of that, because Bet was kind of like our touchstone for this episode where she does ask John and in front of everybody confronts him and says, you're doing this. You're responsible for all of these events tonight. Why did you do this? And John very calmly tells her, all I did was take away the lies. All of you did the rest. And that was the segue into the mass self-harm. And Bet burns her writing. Everyone's killing themselves. She stabs her eyes out. And we, we literally see a silhouette of this happening, and this is after she's also burned herself. So at this point, everyone but Bet and John are dead. The diner is dimly lit, and everything is destroyed. And then something starts to happen. We got lights flashing. We've got John being suddenly talked to by three of the dead women, including Bet. And... Lights are flashing, and yet so is the identity of the three women that were dead a moment ago but are standing there talking to him. And bum, bum, bum! John is talking to the fates. Priscilla, how did you feel to see the fates coming back and with all the violence and gore? Is it weird that I was disappointed because I was, like, in the comics, isn't it Destiny that comes out? So I, was I hoping, think so. So I was I, hoping to see... Destiny, but we didn't get that. But uh, hey, any chance I get to see my my past MVPs, I'm gonna love. Oh, yeah. And I love that they superimposed them with like blind um bet because like I don't know, isn't it isn't it kind of like a Greek thing or or something or other that like the it's the priestesses used to be like 
maimed or something to 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 channel to have the, their gift. the god. Like it yeah, makes it's sense. a common trope in. Um, I, I believe it was Greek. I don't know about the priestesses of Delphi, but it is a very common in history. Those who were believed to have the power of foresight would blindfold themselves or physically blind themselves to be able to hone and sharpen their power. Mm-hmm. So I I loved it. I oh my god though, but I hated the scene where she stabbed her eyes because for me that is like my one thing i can see like violence and gore to no end but if you mess with the eyes oh that's that's oh god i i hated it i hated it yes i i feel you with the eyes that's always been kind of one of my things it's that for me and then anytime someone gets like a knife through the center of their palm (gasps) and that happened here didn't it yeah you got both I did. <laughs> so I was a little shook when that happened. I'm like, you know, I'm pretty desensitized, but, uh, you know, I, you, yeah, it got to me a little bit. Jeff, what about you? Yeah, um, it was all gnarly in a fantastic way. It, it went from, like, a porno to Saw in, like, 30 seconds. It was spectacular. Um, it, yeah, it gives a new meaning to the word torture porn or the phrase torture porn because we had the porn and now the torture although i will say the sex was not really graphic um which was interesting there was no nudity so they did it all they they it was classy um sex for lack of a better word they should have showed some skin i'm just saying but they showed a whole lot more afterwards so after they all had sex like i knew murder was gonna happen i just knew it i was like okay they're all gonna like get stuff that's boiling up out and then what are they going to be left with you know they had these primal urges and they're then they're just going to go full-on primal and once jerry died first i was like okay he's dead and let's be real for me i was like or gary i should say um once it like i was like he's either going to die from like a physical altercation or he's going to have a heart attack because of the like he keep he keep he kept on eating the damn double right? stack double decker burger yes i was like that doesn't seem healthy i was like cuz they they were like all kind of stuck there so i was like how many of these burgers is he going to eat because that's just too much but when they all killed themselves because in essence john d was like you know, oh, you go, you all have to now suffer, you know, because that's what you guys like. You want the lies. And the lies is you all suffering, and I freed you. But you want to suffer? I'm going to make you suffer. So he had each one of them murk themselves. From stabbing themselves, slicing themselves, burning themselves stabbing themselves. I mean, it was just a gore fest in this diner. I have no idea who's going to clean this place up because I feel like no one's going to be able to eat there ever again. And while all of this is going on, we do have also the news reports that not only is this diner being affected, but in essence, the entire world is being affected by this ruby so i thought that was fascinating as well and all john is doing is eating his vanilla ice cream as if nothing <laughs> is happening i thought that was just you know like the chef's kiss of just insanity in this episode i felt for everybody 
I knew they were all going to die, but I still felt for them and I felt bad for them, which props to all of them as actors, because we were just introduced to all of these people in this episode. And much like my girl, Rosemary, from before, like, like I actually started liking and caring about these characters. So props to the writers and the actors for bringing these characters to life and death. Because they did a great job with it. Because I was going along with their story. And, and I was rooting for them even though I knew, because John D was there, that everything was going to go to hell in a handbasket. Yes. No, I, I personally, for this episode, like, even though I, I had a hint, obviously, from having read the comics, like, you know, I put I, sometimes I have the ability to, like, put myself in the perspective of, like, objectively watching something. Obviously, I can never take away and forget the experience of reading the comics, but I can objectively look at it and appreciate something from the perspective, you know, without bias. And on a second watch, I really do feel they did such an amazing job with everything, but especially with how they slowly, but then it's almost like you can't even pinpoint it. It's like there's this buildup of this low tension and everything. And then before you even realize it, the rug has been pulled out from under you and all the shit hits the fan. And it's it was such an incredibly written journey. And I agree with you. The actors did a bang up job, but the journey itself as well was just I went into this episode like wondering, like, how are we going to get here and where's it going to go? And then when it got there, I was like, whoa. But I also agree we should have seen some more skin. I think that would have been, yeah, I think that would have been a, a good addition. Cause right? it, they, we're on Netflix. Yeah. They released those three, six, five movies. I'm just saying right? <laughs> shout out to the three, six, five universe. I mean, they could have even done some like tasteful side boob or some buttocks, you know, still kept a PG 13. <laughs> we saw dreams booty in the first episode. We did. We did. <laughs> Speaking of our friend Dream, he's about to make a little bit of an appearance, but we pick up with, uh, as you mentioned, Jeff, we're starting to hear that this encapsulation that we're seeing in the diner is happening everywhere. We have pandas that are refusing to mate or finally mating and the world is falling apart, and we get the hint that this is actually bad. It's not just diner bad, it is world bad, because John's power, him having the ruby and using it, is having ramifications throughout the entire world. And in his interaction with the fates, John really wants to know his future, because our patrons of the diner indirectly acted as a sacrifice to summon the fates. As we all know, to summon the fates, it requires an object of great power or something of great worth. And all of our diners combined lives were enough to make the fates do a little cameo. And he wants to know about his future. And they tell him, you will defeat the king of dreams. And they're gone. And the door opens. And Morpheus walks in. And now we finally get the introduction to each other of Dream and John. And their interaction is terse and tense, to say the least, because Dream is trying to tell him, you know, the power is poisoning you, you're doing things to the world, this is bad, you should just give me the ruby. And John is convinced, no, I'm doing good things, I'm letting truth come out and taking away the lies. And they are not seeing eye to eye. 
And John basically says, you know what? I'm not giving it back to you. In fact, I will defeat you. And Dream is like, okay, cool. You want to do that? Well, then let's do it in the world of Dream. So Morpheus throws John into a dream where his maternal trauma, his imprisonment, his complicated relationship with Ethel, his history and background all come together in this amalgamated dream of experiences. And we get the return of Ethel. He gets to see iterations of his past growing up with Ethel when she's young and he's a baby. He gets to walk through Roderick's house. He's chasing after this hooded cloaked figure wearing dreams mask and john is just like okay i'm along for the ride let's see where this goes he's chasing after the person but he's also along the way seeing the frustrations that his mother had not really knowing how to take care of him not wanting to take care of him and we're, we're seeing john's fears john's worries and his a little bit of a twisted mindset made him the the way that he is kind of manifest. And as it reaches to the point where we start to get a little bit of a confrontation, he follows the hooded and helmed figure into the bedroom. They're sitting on the bed. And as he walks forward, he's getting close with them. He takes off the mask and it is once again, young Ethel Cripps in a very Oedipus like kind of moment. He's sitting there staring at her in bed with his half naked mother and she mocks him, she's laughing at him, and this is when the confrontation with Dream begins. John snaps himself out of his nightmare. He is in the destroyed and dilapidated palace in Dreamland, and Dream is there, and John is like, no, I am not going to let you win. I am going to take over. I'm going to destroy you, and he wields the ruby, and starts doing what we saw happen to Gregory, to the Corinthian when he was repelled, Dream starts to disintegrate. And John is feeling the rush of the moment. He's holding on tight to that ruby, walking closer. Dream is having his power sucked away, and John defeats Dream. Or does he? Because during their battle, Dream is clearly weakened, and John thinks that he is one, but in the battle, John destroys the ruby. And the destruction of the ruby, anyone who's ever watched a fantasy movie or read a fantasy novel, when someone puts their power in a vessel and then said vessel gets broken, usually what ends up happening is the power has to go someplace, and usually it likes to go back to where it came from. And we get a beautiful moment of John thinking that he is one and he's celebrated and the world of dream is burning down around him. But next thing we know, he is standing in the palm of a very gigantic version of dream. And dream tells him, thank you. I never thought you would destroy the ruby, but you doing it gave me all my power that was in it back to me. And I win. And dream has the upper hand. And John does not take long to accept defeat. He very pitifully looks up at Dream, and we see that that child that he probably was wanting love, wanting care, being taken everywhere by his mother, being beaten by his mother's boyfriends, ever the victim, wanting to win and have the power. John is now a victim again, and he asks, are you going to kill me? And Dream says, I could. Perhaps I might. But as we have watched, Dream has gone on a bit of a journey these past episodes, and 
he's feeling a little bit more understanding. And so the episode ends with John being placed back in his prison hospital without any magical artifacts to help him. So no more orb of protection, no more ruby. John is given the gift of a peaceful sleep, and we now have Matthew and Dream discussing how in the world is all of the destruction. They're standing outside of the diner, and Matthew is like, well, how is this going to get fixed? Can you put it all together again? And Dream is like, well, rebuilding will start tomorrow. Dream now has the helm. He has the ruby. He has the sand. His quest is complete. And as Dream and Matthew walk away to wherever they are going to go next, we are introduced to a very androgynous and beautiful character standing not too far away. And as they watch Dream and Matthew, they kind of smile and they refer to Dream as Big Brother. Dot, dot, dot. Priscilla, how did you feel with the confrontation? What did you think of John and Dream finally meeting? And we've been waiting for this and building up to it these past few episodes. What did you think? I mentioned in a past episode that I thought this was going to take longer to get to. And I thought it was going to be dragged out for more episodes. Because I know that we have more episodes up ahead. But no, they did it quick. One episode, bam. And the fight was on. And oh my god, it was epic it is completely what i thought like a dream master and an evil villain with the power to create dreams into reality like it's exactly the mind fuck that i expected it to be from the comics like you don't only get so much from an from a still image and when you see them moving about and like in video form it's just epic it's beautiful the creepiness of him being with his mom again like that was gross i didn't need to see that richardson did not need to have to do that again oh, <laughs> but, uh, oh. the and the hand the giant hand when he like loses and dream is just like huge like it just shows that like he's a deity he's or even better than a deity he he's an endless so he is personified dreams. Like, he's got all that power, and it was just concentrated on Ruby. But now that it's free, it had to go back to him. And it was just, oh, it was awe-inspiring. It was brilliant. And I I felt, like, I felt a shiver go down my spine when he was like, are you going to kill me? And he's like, perhaps, perhaps not. I was like, wow. You are a mortal bowing to the whims of fate to... And he broke fate, basically, because fate said that he would lose, that John D. would win. But Dream managed to turn things around in his favor, which is cool, which is great, grandiose. And I will say, Patton Oswalt's voice when he's like, can you fix this, is exactly what my heart was saying. So I was like, oh, my poor Bet, my poor Judy. Even Marsh, who's an asshole, like, I feel bad for all of them dead. Bring them back. I totally didn't get that, that bad stuff was happening around the world until he went outside and it looked like the end of Resident Evil where Mila Jojovich is coming out. Like, the world is in chaos. There's burning cars and shit. So I loved that he's like, I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> and so also Desire. Desire! Ah, uh, yes. Oh, perfect casting! 
So do you think that dream overturned what fate ordained? Or do you think that maybe the fates told John just enough? Because technically he did defeat dream in the realm of dreams in his dream. I think that the fates only give you so much and you have to like twist things to your end to complete the the prophecy but end it in your own way like the way they they did mention that he was going to lose and he did lose at the very beginning but the open end was that they never said that John D was going to be able to keep the ruby and that he was going to change the world mhm <laughs> got to love those triple sisters and their snarky and clever fortune telling Jeff, what do you think of the end? Oh, it was really good. Although I will say, because no one's nitpicked it, so I might as well should. Uh, the CGI was a little wonky. When he turned into like a Funko Pop, it was, <laughs> I mean, you know, he had like the bobblehead Funko Pop thing going on, which, um, you know, maybe it was supposed to be kind of like otherworldly because we're in a dream and that sort of thing. But it, it looks strange, is all that I will say. It looked a little weird, but it was still interesting to look at, even though it was odd. Um, okay, now as far as the fates, I agree with you, Vinny, 100%. I feel like they told him enough so that he would think he was going to win, but then the reality was what we saw. Because we did see Dream lose. You know, he got sucked up into the ruby but then he smashed it and then released him and then i mean that was his big mistake and then of course him getting sort of like eternal slumber was fantastic Uh, you know that seems to be the best punishment that dream can give because in essence it's, it's a punishment but also mercy because you know he was like it's not really your fault it's kind of like the situation that you were in which means this is a little bit of a an evolved character developmentized dream than we saw before. I mean, you know, one of his followers, one of his acolytes did one wrong thing and like she has been in hell for like tens of thousands of years. I'm like, <laughs> if you're being this nice, like go back down to hell and like forgive her because Put her to sleep. Exactly. What the hell did she do? I mean, I don't well, we don't know. I don't know if we will ever find out. But, I mean, was it as bad as John D? Because I feel like he fucked up in a big way. I'm just saying. So you might have to do some reconsideration about the situation. But, uh, yeah, like the chaos that happened on Earth. You know, the ramifications. The fact that he has to rebuild his world. And, in essence, by returning dreams and hopes and aspirations to people, he's going to help fix the real world or as he likes to call it, this other realm. That's interesting as well. We did not get the name of our person in this episode, but but you all said it, and uh, I had sort of read something anyway. So I was like, okay, so we're getting a sibling, which is fascinating. We are halfway through the series' run, and we already defeated what I thought was going to be maybe not the big bad, 
but at least a decent-sized mini-boss as we trek through this season. So we've got five more episodes. In actuality, we have six because Netflix dropped something a couple days ago. So we've got more episodes to go. So something has to happen. I mean, it can't just always... Oh, it can't just always. I mean, it can't just all be Lucifer popping back up because you know Lucifer's coming. And much like the people in this episode, they were <laughs> Lucifer's coming hard. But, oh, sorry. I had to go there. This was the pervy episode. Really? Um, <laughs> I was waiting for it. Because if you didn't, I was going to. Right. I mean, I'm a child at heart. Uh, a teen. But anyway. Um, but yeah. So, so I mean, it ended in a really good way. Because I was like, where do we go from here? And then all of a sudden, in true, like, 70s soap opera way... You know, we turn around and someone is, like, lurking around the corner, you know, basically saying, I'm gonna get you, bitch. And uh, we'll see if that ends up happening. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I was definitely here for the outfit that Desire was wearing. Uh, the, the sharp business suit and just the very eerie. It was very, very soap opera-like. Hmm, big brother. <laughs> That so, makeup is awesome. Like, yes. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I got callbacks to a little bit of, like, influence of Lady Gaga a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, he is as beautiful as a goddess, but, like, as tricky and as, like, masculine as a god. So he's, he's yeah. an amalgamation of both. Hey. So hey. It's, it's awesome. It's the like Loki and Aphrodite. Mm-hmm. And sold to my little surprise. As Jeff pointed out, we are at the midway point. We are at the end of episode five. We've got five, technically six episodes left. And what a journey it has been these past five episodes. We've had villains come and go. We've had victims fucking go and die. We've had the fates. We've had a lot to go in front of us. And we've had a lot of favorite moments, a lot of shocking moments. So... I would like to ask the two of you, so far, now that we're at the midpoint, what is the most memorable, poignant, fascinating, just one moment that stands out to you above all else from the past five episodes? Jeff, I'll let you start. I don't like you at this moment. Um, (laughs) Because I did not want to go first. Uh, um, One moment that stands out so far and i'm doing that slow as my brain is processing because the first thing that popped into my brain is the fight in hell i feel like visually that was really impressive if i had to think about it i don't think that would be the first thing that i would say though interestingly enough even though it's the first thing that popped into my head right now um like, I want to say my girl, Rosemary, uh, just because, like, that whole storyline was fascinating. And I thought it was going to be a bigger thing, but it, it, it didn't. Um, so I guess I'll go with the fight in hell, Lucifer versus Dream for the Dream Helm. Which, I mean, basically, Dream should have just asked us for it, because we give out Dream Helms, you know, by the buckets every <laughs> podcast so like we have 
like a closet filled with Dream Helm's dream. You could have just come to us and not have done like that whole thing in hell. Um, but, you know, he went to hell. He got his, well, I guess he wanted his. He didn't want like a new one. You know, we give out the new ones every week. But, um, yeah, I guess that would be the thing that pops up into my brain because that was really literally the first thing that popped into my brain. Nice. I was going to say, is it the moment where you decided that you don't want to go first and you let Priscilla go first? Is that the most memorable? <laughs> right. <laughs> Speaking of Priscilla, hit me. What's your moment? My moment is going to be super weird, but it was the moment where uh, Dream's first raven dies. Because you could see Aww. hope in his eyes after being miserable for so long. And it was just so convoluted. And it, if you hadn't read the comics, you were like, oh, he's going to escape. She's going to break it and he's going to get out. And then it's just, bam, nothing. And oh, it, just, it was it was epic. I loved it. Indeed. That was definitely, I felt my heartstrings tug in that moment. Absolutely. So for me, it's a very specific moment of a very specific event that was only a fraction, but it was the last moment that we saw Gregory's face before he faded away. Like that last couple seconds where he and Dream were locking eyes and Gregory was like, saying it without speaking words of like it's okay i know this is for the greater good don't feel bad like that just hit me and even now all these episodes later it still just kind of gets me in the feels and it was so powerful for me i'm getting a little verklem talking about it <laughs> all right don't worry we get gerving exactly we got gerving and we got desire Ooh, interesting so, it is time for the MVP, the most valuable player. Tell us which character impressed you throughout the episode and why. Once they have been chosen, they cannot be selected again. So, Priscilla, choose wisely. You are first. Thank you. I'm going to pick Bet because she was the character that, like, we only got her for one episode, but she managed to make you love her right off the bat. And the twistedness that she that 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 um the 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 villain does to her, like twisting her words and making her go from this sweet waitress to somebody who is just miserable with life with Marsh to go from happy with Judy and then to be completely, like, ruined again with the eyes. Like, everything about this was just a Greek tragedy. And it was painful. And to get all of those emotions in one episode. Amazing. So, yeah, for sure. All right. So we got Bet off the table. Jeff, who is your MVP? Priscilla's an evil woman. I just wanted to say that publicly. I told you she just needs the title in front of yes, her name. I agree. Yes, I am I'm disgusted. But that leaves John D. So hopefully I, I did to you, Vinny, what she did to me. Um, because he was the puppet master of this entire episode. His bitch ass wanted people not to lie. And what did that do? It led them to 
expose their carnal, primal desires. And then once the desires left, there was just the primal, which led to murder, death, kill. And then all of that led to his comeuppance in a wonderful, spectacular way. So he he thought he was Mr. Big Stuff, and then Dream pulled a little okey-doke on him in a fantastic way. So uh, props to John D. for thinking he had it all. Props also for his mother for choking him out, because that was fantastic. I was like, oh, if he dies by getting choked out by his mama in this dream... That would have been spectacular. But they saved the best for last because Dream got a chance to not necessarily kill him, but at least, you know, make him peacefully suffer. Jeff, we are now officially feuding. Okay, good. <laughs> I enjoy a feud. Indeed. No, I, I luckily had a tie for my number one choice for MVP, and only one of them was taken. Bet was number two. Um, but my my equally tied, in addition to John D was... Dream. And even though he was only in this episode for a fraction of everything that took place, we got such gravity from him and we got to see a return on the investment of the past few episodes of him going on this journey of understanding that humanity is not one dimensional. It is multidimensional. There's no necessarily black and white definition of all good, all evil, or vice versa. People have motivations. People have reasons from fear or experiences as to why they do the things that they do. And for me, the very powerful section of this episode was when Dream didn't come in with his power going crazy and being like, I'm going to take my ruby. He came from a place of, I want to talk to you. I want to let you know what you're doing. I want to try to appeal to your humanity. I felt that that was such a huge step for him and a culmination of the trials and travails that he has gone through in the past four episodes. And then to just kind of turn what the fate said on a dime and be the victor and also exercise mercy to John. And just that last scene with him and Matthew walking away, like I was just blown away by dream. And I really, really am excited to see where we go from here because now he has his powers back. And when I walked out of this episode right after John, I was thinking about, well, now the dream is all powerful again. Where do we go from here? What's going to happen? And what is this next part of his journey going to be like? So clearly I mean, I'm just assuming I'm making an assumption. I know what they say about that, but I'm just going out on a limb and saying, you know, we kind of liked this episode. Well, let's find out how much you guys like this episode. It is time to rate it. How would you rate the episode on a scale of one to ten Dream Hounds? Because Dream was clearly needed in need of one recently, and we got them the spare. So uh, the point system is allowed. If you found the episode exceptional, deserving of more than a ten, you may grant it the coveted Golden Dream Helm. Jeff, are you feeling first this time around? Oh, 100%. Golden Dream Helm. You bought a whole bunch from Costco. You got, the, you got them in bulk, so I'm ready just to hand them out. Uh, Golden Dream Helm. It was fantastic from beginning to end. It was like, you know, a mini play, you know, taking place in this diner, you know, the um, sins of man, basically. Beautifully done. I didn't even mention this, so I guess... Uh, 
I'll mention it right now. The moment when Dream was showing John kind of like the error of his ways. You know, he he gave us a glimpse to the scene that we saw earlier in the episode, but giving it from Dream's POV that, no, they're not lying. They're all living with their hopes and and uh and and dreams for their futures like i thought that was a really great reinterpretation of what we saw so everything about this episode was fantastic i loved the acting i loved the plot movement i love that we defeated a mini boss in john d and i love how you know this really reshuffled the deck and uh, gave us a new hand because I genuinely have no idea where we're going from here outside of the fact that we have to rebuild the dreaming and save maybe not the cheerleader but we do have to save the world (laughs) oh I love it I love it Priscilla are we uh digging into the Costco supply of golden dream homes or do you have a difference Oh, I'm totally an easy grader this time around because I'm giving it a golden dream home. It was just so beautiful, like, to take you from epic highs of just raunchy sex to, like, lows of everybody freaking dying in middles of just a normal day at a diner and you have the presentiment that something bad is going to happen to a giant version of dream and this fucked up world where your mom is choking you out like it's it's beautiful this this show is just so pristine and just perfect i love it you know i going into this episode i was wary i was very kind of like oh god like how is I've been waiting for this moment. I don't know about you, Priscilla, but like I was really concerned about how is this going to be translated into the screen? Are they going to do it all? Are they going to edit it? Are they going to change it? Is it going to be worse or milder? And this episode was absolutely a golden dream helm for me as well. The journey was so deceiving in the beginning. As you said, like it starts out, you know, you're you're just in a diner and you find yourself like you know, putting myself in the position of like objectively thinking like if I was watching this without my knowledge, like it would at first be very disarming. Like, where's Dream? Why why is John just sitting in a diner? Like, what is the point of this? And then you quickly realize that there is so much more going on and it unraveled slowly. And I was there for the ride all on the way, like the edge of my seat, like this invested in these characters, the journey was beautiful and tragic. And then the culmination at the end, you know, John finally being defeated and the breadcrumb being laid for what's going to happen next with the introduction of desire. But from start to finish, I was absolutely engaged enraptured, and in love. So golden dream helm across the board. We have a trifecta. I love it. I love it. I love it. So on that note, join us next time for a brand new installment of The Waking Dream. Here's our announcer to remind you on how you can interact with us. Follow Poppy Chula Radio on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Poppy Chula Radio. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or concerns? Email us via contact at poppychularadio.com. Are you interested in joining the Poppy Chula Radio team as an on-air personality?
Email talent at poppychularadio.com. Binge listen to your favorite Poppy Chula Radio programs by visiting poppychularadio.com slash archives. You can also download tonight's broadcast and the rest of the series through Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Just search for The Waking Dream and subscribe. Thanks, announcer. My co-host, please wish the listeners a good night. Priscilla? Screw the salad. Eat your burgers, people. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Jeff? Have a good night, everybody. Don't forget to tip your waitress. Good night, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe to The Waking Dream via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also download the entire series by visiting poppychularadio.com slash archives. Good night and pleasant dreams.